Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Govs on the Go Alumni Edition, a podcast featuring alumni from the College of Arts and Letters here at Austin P. State University. My name is Dr. Buzzun. I'm the dean of the college. I'm also the host of the podcast. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Alan Mearns, who graduated from Austin P. with a master's degree in music back in 2003. Alan, so glad to have you on the podcast. This is something I've been looking forward to for a while. Great to be with you, Buzz. Yeah. So, um, you know, before we begin your interesting story, won't you give everybody a life update? Tell everybody where you are and what's going on. Uh, well, I currently live in a wee town in North Carolina called Hickory. That's kind of, I guess, between Charlotte and the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I live close there with my family. You know, I've got two wonderful adult kids, Ravel and Dorian, and my wife, Carrie. And, uh, yeah, we live here just in the Piedmont of North Carolina, where I spend my time uh, writing and arranging music and writing songs and poetry. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. My wife's an ESL teacher, kind of an ESL angel. And my son's uh, a burgeoning composer and classical pianist. My daughter... Uh, she does animation, um, so she's studying art and literature in college and with kind of the idea to maybe be some kind of film author or write children's books. We're both. So the creative spell continues on through your family. That's great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not my fault. It's just it's uh, genetics, I guess. But the what? kids are... They have a good head on their shoulders as well, you know. Absolutely. And, and I'm sure that's attributed to your wife for that part. Uh, completely and utterly, <laughs> 100% and only. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, your experience with your family. Now, for those that don't know, you grew up in Belfast, Ireland. Yeah, Belfast, Northern Ireland. Yeah. Um, yeah, kind of in the in the middle of the troubles there, you know, and... Yeah, we, um, my dad was, um, I guess he would say he was kind of a successful businessman in a way, um, coming from a very poor area. And he had this, when he was younger, he had this kind of, um, I guess this radical spiritual experience where he was kind of, uh, became, he says he was arrested by God before the police could arrest him. <laughs> and he, uh, became kind of like a, I guess, kind of a preacher, missionary type person in the middle of the, the culture, which is in a kind of simmering civil war, you know, based on religion, believe it or not. So but he was kind of strangely folded upwards from that with his own kind of personal experience. And he started this kind of hippie church, I guess, in the, in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and so I, I kind of grew up in that kind of atmosphere, being amongst all that stuff, but strangely kind of folded upwards from it, you know, where we had um, very deliberate friendships on both sides of the troubles, you know. Mm -hmm. And so my dad ended up, um, he felt this kind of um, calling, I guess, to work with these 
churches in America, you know, not, not the kind of thing that he would have initially done because he worked in Africa and India and he would felt much more at home with that. Um, but we ended up moving to Houston, the armpit of the world, just uh, <laughs> in terms of the, you know, the weather, some lovely people there. And I met my wife to be there, you know, uh, and she followed me up to Boone, where we, we moved, ended up moving to Boone, North Carolina. And she she followed me up there, and we ended up getting married there in college. And um, even though I only lived there for like five years, six years, it's still kind of like my American home in my own heart, you know. Yeah. So we live about 40 minutes from there um, and get up to the mountains is often as possible today for instance is what got to be in the mid 90s and it's just terrible you know, for an irishman it's <laughs> de absolutely desperate so i go yeah. up to the mountains and then there's oxygen and i feel happy right all of a sudden that's kind of like my you know happy place so so Alan, yeah. you, this i want to ask and I, I remember asking you when you got turned on to music and you mentioned that you started playing the violin at a yes. very young age. Yeah, I played the violin from when I was five until I was about 10 or 11. Well, the end of primary school, we just have two sets of schools back home. You know, you have like your primary school, which is um, all the young stuff from four or five till 11. And then you go into the Harry Potter school, you know, for the rest of it. Um, so, yeah, whenever I guess they had, uh, you know, fund funding for the arts and they took it kind of seriously on some degree at home so we had um i guess some kind of aptitude test for music and the kids that showed the most aptitude they would loan them violins cellos flutes to play and um, we had this amazing guy from the ulster orchestra very patient man um come and teach us you know mr kershaw and so it'd be like a little group lesson, you know, about five or six students. And, you know, and if somebody had learned the pieces well, he would give them 50p, which is probably about currently about three dollars. You know, it's like significant. That's pretty good. You had this kind of, yeah, a little bit of bribery. And uh, yeah, so I, I did that. And then whenever um, I heard... I think my brother's friend came into like a like a youth group thing for church and picked up the guitar and played Johnny Be Good. You know, like he was, um, yeah, he was like, um, and I was like, oh my gosh, that's so much cooler than the violin. <laughs> Have to try that. So, yeah, eventually my dad just bought me a guitar and I was just obsessed with that. You know, it was just a. That's what I did. I came home from school and just made a cup of tea and went into my bedroom and played the guitar till it was dark, you know. So how did you get your first guitar? And was it was there a story in, involved with that? Did you go? Did you have to go to your dad and say, Dad, I've, I've decided I'm going to move? I think to he this. got it for me for Christmas. It was just like an like a cheap steel string acoustic. It wasn't yeah. it wasn't very easy to play, you know, but it was just it was something. It was enough. It was just like. It just became your toy you know and 
I also, uh, and then the next year it was like an electric guitar. He got me, um, not the kind that I really want wanted, you know, cause I wanted one of those kind of heavy metal pointy ones, you know, cause I wanted to be like Steve Vai or something. Um, there's all that kind of widdly widdly guitar, electric guitar, pyrotechnics going on when I was a kid. And so then the next, you know, year after that or whatever, he, he, even though he didn't have a lot of money, um, <laughs> he, I, I had ordered some kind of guitar, like my ideal guitar or something that I could afford or, or potentially from a certain music store. And, and they were kind of, they weren't real dealers in this, in Ibanez guitars, you know, apparently, and they kept kind of leading you up the garden path and they didn't have it and blah, blah, blah. So my dad got a bit frustrated and I remember him just picking me up in downtown Belfast. I was walking down the road with my buddies and he picked me up and he just drove me across town to a different actual Ibanez dealer, you know, and I'd never been in that music store. And it was just this big shrine of these guitars, you know, the Steve Vai guitar, the Joe Satriani guitar. And he just said, just pick, pick the one that you want, you know, which was incredible, you know, so I still got that guitar, you know, oh, at the studio, you know, and, uh, and he got me an amplifier, you know, and it was just, of course, you had to, um, you had to talk them down to the lowest possible price because he's <laughs> a, a Scotsman, technically, you know, he was born in Scotland, but so yeah, that, you know, then it was just like a, it's just people pushing you forward, you know, and helping you, um, you know, what's, what you're interested in. So, you know, I was like, I had to check that night and look down from my bunk bed to make sure I wasn't dreaming, you know, the guitar was still there. That's awesome. So, yeah, it's just became your, your toy, you know, and then your, you know, a friend of mine often says, you know, what you take takes you, you mm -hmm. know. So if you uh, you put on a tool belt and you start showing up at the construction site, you know, you know, you might end up being a, a carpenter or a, you know a joiner. So it's a bit like that. It just kind of overtakes your life, you know. So when you moved to the U.S. and you moved to Houston, as you mentioned, um, yeah. was there and you you just must have decided that the playing the guitar was going to continue on and and uh yeah i, I just couldn't i couldn't help it you know we we all arrived in houston with a suitcase each i had a suitcase and a guitar and uh yeah it was it wasn't really something that i had a premeditation or or some kind of cognitive plan just something and in a way being that culture shock and coming to um, somewhere that's so kind of um, bipolar from Irish culture and, you know, climate, the guitar became kind of like this miniature cathedral mm -hmm. where I would, I would live in it, you know, but um, the, uh, yeah, and then my dad bought me a classical guitar when I was in Houston, just a kind of a high-end Yamaha guitar and i just taught myself to read music you know because i was getting to, i played very high level by ear which is pro probably the most important thing for a musician but i want I, I wanted to be able to play bach and um my parents took me to this uh classical guitar music store that still exists in houston called the guitar gallery and 
I went and picked out some music. I got the Lute Suites of Bach and, uh, you know, and just kind of forced myself to read music out of necessity. I don't know how I did it. I just kind of did it. I don't know how you did it either. And, uh, you know, my son did that himself for the piano during the pandemic, and he's like a kind of a virtuoso pianist now. So it must be something that's um, in there. Yeah, there's some God-given there. It's desire. It's just desire and uh, love, you know. When you love something, nothing will stop you from doing it. And So, yeah. You, I just, were, you were a teenager at that time, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, is, was there ever just sort of this pull towards, um, I mean, because I'm sure, you know, being a teenager, knowing how to play the guitar is a, is a cool factor. And then, but you also are saying, I want to learn how to do classical guitar. And, and I'm sure people of your age, that's something different. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I just had such a kind of an, an intrinsic love of music. It wasn't, you know, it, I guess when I was younger, maybe you thought of it with all the, the heavy metal stuff. It was kind of a cool factor, but um, I guess it was just such a deep thing. I got kind of really in, into Bach and stuff when I was about 12, actually, buying a, a cassette tape, you know, and, and just really being like my imagination was turned on a lot. So it was such a kind of a deep uh, intrinsic motivation that I, um, it was more just like being a heroin addict or something, you know, it wasn't obsessed. It, it was just the music itself was something that I needed, you know, and, um, but yeah, it's, I guess, um, yeah, that music wouldn't have been as cool as <laughs> something. <laughs> Well, yeah, I think you ended up being cool anyway, but, uh, you know, whether or not you're anybody's cool as a teenager is a question. That's whether right. Well, uh, I guess uh, I was very good at soccer, you know, so I think I maybe had a, that was maybe where that the guitar wasn't really on people's radar. It was more like my soccer skills. Oh, okay. Football maybe were. Although I wasn't that, still wasn't that interested in being cool. I think I spent the first year in the high school just being like completely alone. The culture shock is just eating my lunch alone. <laughs> and uh, yeah, my sister just went home. She had to go home to Belfast. You couldn't hack it. And uh, it was just me and my brother then, you know, who was college age. So, so yeah, I mean, so go ahead. No, yeah. So, so you're, after high school, uh, how did you, you know, what were you thinking? Were you thinking about going to college? Were you planning to study? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, some some things just happen, I guess, when you uh, when you set your coordinates. So kind of like fully on something, you know, the universe or God, whatever you want to call it, just kind of throw certain things in your path, I, I find personally. Um, so, for instance, when I moved to Boone, you know, I was doing my last year in high school. There was a wee girl in uh, my music theory, had an AP music theory class, and she was this lovely, friendly girl I still know called Maria Kent. And her dad was this virtuoso pianist who taught at Appalachian State, um, Alan Kent, and he kind of laid down a concert career just to raise a family, you know, up in Boone. So he was like this, he was kind of like the star of um, 
of the music faculty in a sense, and maybe in a way, a way that Stanley Yates is, but Austin P, you know, like who has an international career and is a, is a well-known person. So she actually got me in touch with uh, Douglas James, who was just new there, you know, it was his first year. And she was like, oh, there's this new uh, classical guitarist teacher. You have to, and I'd never actually heard a classical guitar concert like in person before i was just really self-taught you know at a certain level there just recordings and stuff and uh so she was like oh yeah you should meet him you know they're doing a faculty concert um and he's going to be playing you know so i was really excited just to see like someone play the classical guitar you know and so you know, once we organized a way from my dad just to take me to his house and play for him, you know, it was, it was just amazing, you know, and I just played all these pieces for him. Then he kind of just became my, like, guitar dad, you know, and, and he would teach me just for free, you know, at the college, which Stanley has done for several people, you know. Um, so he he was like, well, I have this full one full ride scholarship available called the Fletcher Scholarship. You know, this family given this big um, donation endowment for all the music schools in North Carolina, and so it's called the Fletcher Scholarship that was available. One was available for each school, each state school. Um, so there was a big competition for this. And he was like, you should enter this. And so I you know, spent the whole year learning this, you know, very difficult Paganini Caprice, you know, for violin type thing on the guitar and this Bach piece and just played it all the time, you know, and uh, and then went and did the two-tier competition. And then the finals, you were competing against, you know, a pianist and a saxophone player, a singer and all this stuff. And I ended up winning it. And so that was amazing, you know, to get, because my parents didn't have really any money to send me to school, you know, so having a full ride was very helpful for our family. You and I have talked about your story, and I see so many times, and I think you'd agree with this, that that doors, for whatever reason, opened up along your way, and you had the the courage and uh, the insight to say, okay, I'm going to step through. Yeah, you know, at the time, whatever we're doing, you know, it seems inevitable. And, you know, we kind of are funneled. I think we're somehow funneled in towards what you're um, born to do or whatever. I mean, I have that in my own kind of faith, I guess, you know, where there's like a, there is a a meaning and a a kind of a, a plot to your life, you know, whether it's, you know, comedic or tragic or both, you know. And uh, so I always feel like I'm kind of stepping into something that's inevitable on some level or if I'm, you know, I'm sensitive to what I should be doing, you know, in in my internal life, that it will somehow kind of um, express itself in reality around me, you know, so um, without getting too, you know. (laughs) Well, you know, part of that is... you know. The next thing, the next door that kind of uh, opens up is, you know, most of the time I ask people, how did you get to Austin P? And and, you know, they'll they'll talk about whatever. And I know the answer to this one where Stanley Yates, who's our wonderful classical guitarist professor here, um, yeah. happened to be 
in Boone, North Carolina as well. Yeah, exactly. He was um, once Doug Jams came to Appalachian State, he immediately uh, started the Appalachian Guitar Festival, which has become kind of one of the biggest American classical guitar festivals um, in the last. And he just retired last year and that keeps going with Adam Costler, who teaches there now. Um, so Stanley was essentially like the first uh, big guest artist there at um, the the very first one. And he was he became buddies with Doug James, I think, at some big guitar festival <coughs> where Stanley was in the finals, you know, and kind of made a big splash there. And so when I remember being in the um, one of the guitar classes, performance class, I think, and, and uh, Doug was like, now, this guy, Stanley Yates, is coming. He's a real virtuoso. You guys cannot miss this concert. You know, he's like, this is kind of like awe about him, you know. And then you saw Stanley's poster and he looks like Paganini or something. And so I had this kind of anticipation. And, and then, sure enough, we we drove through. I think I remember it being uh, early May, the concert was, but there was actually snow. <laughs> it was, there was like a blizzard in the mountains which is not unusual up there to have a, we have a second summer here, but they kind of have a second winter apparently. <laughs> and uh, maybe it was April, it might be April, but we uh, went through this blizzard and listened and the Stanley's concert was just like the best guitar playing I'd ever heard. Probably still is. And he played two full cello suites and then these two modern pieces um, juxtaposed. And I was just blown away, you know, it was just, so he kind of became my guitar hero, um, right about night, you know, and then the next morning I was playing these pieces for him, you know, and he was very helpful and encouraging. He's also from my neck of the woods, you know, he's from Northern England, which is just across the pond, you know, from Belfast. So we had a lot in common, you know, culturally. And, and so whenever I, when I got to the point of ending my bachelor's degree, I was, a, I guess I was a wee bit bored of the academic world of you know, the ivory tar. And I had this kind of bug in me to write songs. So um, whatever I worked out, I had friends that had moved to Nashville. And he was like, well, I, you know, I have some inroads in the music world. Cause he was a graphic designer and you should come over and try your, hat on for doing some session work and, and that seemed exciting to me so just like you know we just kind of follow those things like a, a dog sniffing for treats you know and but Doug James was like well while you're there um you should you know just get your master's degree Stanley teaches just north of Nashville and I was like oh okay yeah that'd be that'd be perfect so I called up you know, or Stanley called me, you know, and he was very excited because you already kind of knew each other. And then it was, you know, it was great, you know, just to be able to, you know, and he's, he just kind of became like family, you know, since then. And an interesting relationship developed afterwards. <laughs> I'll say that. And I say that because when I see you two, you, you both um, make each other laugh, but you also are uh, challenge each other. And not afraid to provide, I think, rather honest feedback. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, 
of always um, styling you out is, is when he when he kind of takes you on as a student. You know, he, he, it's not just like a kind of a, you know some kind of pedantic. I'm the master, and you're the you know the little pleb coming to learn from me. You know, he's very care. He really cares about people. You know, and so. It kind of takes you on and, and, and is wherever you are and helps you. And I remember even when I, I I played at a very high level, you know, by the end of my master's degree, you know, and he was excited about me going to maybe Manhattan School of Music or, you know, somewhere to do my doctorate, a high pedigree. And But it was one of those things, again, where I was like, I, I wanted to start like a band. <laughs> you know, I was, so I'm always kind of in flux between popular music and classical music but he was very encouraging with that you know and even the, what I wanted to do and I had my own intrinsic motivation to do he supported you so um yeah it's always been that case and he he was very instrumental in introducing me to the Beatles and on a deep level so we we share that kind of aspect too of like taking pop music very seriously and and then whenever i had my own kind of uh i'd say maybe about six years ago or so I, you know i was trying to finish this bach recording partly just out of like almost like guilt from my teachers like oh i did something with my skills <laughs> you know here it is you know and that's then just kind of throw it away but then it kind of became serious this Bach project it became more and more um, personal and serious with the things I was doing and so that whole process I was doing with Stanley you know talking to on the phone about things and about our own personal explorations with uh, Bach so then uh, you know when I came to, to visit him about six years or five years ago you know um yeah, it just became, became where he really was encouraging me with that stuff. And he was really like a, um, almost like a, uh, what do you call it? Um, you know, when somebody's helping with a birth, like a kind of a, a midwife. Midwife. Yeah, he kind of midwife the, the whole Bach thing with me, you know, where some of the stuff I was doing that would be kind of maybe a bit controversial. He, he was like, no, nah, do more, yeah, you know. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, he's obviously an international scholar, you know, known Bach scholar. His, his cello suite arrangements are the most famous, you know, in the world, in the classical guitar world. So, yeah, we've it, 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 always kind of challenged each other, even when I was a student there, you know. he, I think I was doing these kind of arrangements, and he took it to be some sort of a competition, I, I didn't. I was, I was there to learn from him, you know. And he started doing all these crazy arrangements while I was there, and uh, yeah. So, so we kind of just share a com, you know, a common bond with several things. You know, even if it was, he wasn't a musician, I would probably still well you know, be friends it, with him. You know? It says something that twenty years have passed since you you graduated, and here yeah. he is still. Um, uh, you know, it, that, that's when I, I try to tell students that there's a lifelong mentorship available with our professors and, and Stanley, who 
as you have said, is an international scholar, accomplished performer. Virtuoso, uh, yeah. <laughs> he's just unbelievable. And yet he he cares so much about his students' success as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm always humbled by his, even his approach, like, because even when I was there, I mean, he would never like push his ideas on you in this like authoritarian kind of pedantic way. You get some, some virtuosos that are, they're like little Napoleons, you know, you know, kind of force their ideas and make their students do all these things. But he was actually very interested in ideas that you had, even about technique and stuff, even though he's written the, maybe the best guitar technique book that exists, you know, he's, and he, and he would, and he would almost kind of like, it's if he would give you as much as you wanted, you know, as much as you uh, went after, you know? And so when I, when I go to visit him, like I still learn things, I just like, there's just a never ending thing where he'll have this just little insight about something or a technical thing or a way to practice something that has just been invaluable, you know? So you really, I mean, that's one of the things in terms of advice, you know, for students not to jump ahead, but, you know, it's one thing going to school, but it's like finding somebody to learn from that can do it. You know, it's like, if you're wanting to, I don't know, learn how the stock market works and you get a chance to hang out with Warren Buffett or something, you know what I mean? It's like, there's no amount of business school will trump Warren Buffett, you know, or learning guitar. You know what I mean? It's so, so when I saw Stanley play, it was like, well, I got to learn from that guy because he can just do it. And so how does he think? How does he um, solve problems? How does he think expressively? So that's kind of an underlying thing that I um, look for and I don't like in terms of mentorship. Um, and then it's, and it's, it depends whether the person is kind of like a, a generous person or, or humble person, you know, and that's just like a bonus, like, uh, you know, and luckily Stanley is very, you know, generous with his knowledge and with his life, you know, we just became good friends, you know? Well, and, um, you know, you were, you were a sponge, it seems like as well. And, and, and taking all that in growing on your own individual part and, yeah. And I want to move to the next chapter because I think it's interesting. You you mentioned this sort of uh, battle between classical music and popular music, and and then you for um, you had a band called Airspace. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I moved back to. I mean, people in Nashville always they encouraged me to like. They were like, "Listen, you'll do better off if you don't start a band in Nashville because it's so kind of saturated." And it's probably still the case. And just go to like where you're from, you know, like REM or from Athens, Georgia, etc. You know, Nirvana or from Seattle. Um, and so I just kind of did that. And it, it was one of the just things that just seemed to be right at the time. You know, my brother just kind of bought a, an old house down here near Hickory and redone it. And then my parents ended up moving, building a house next to him. And so me and Carrie moved down. And, our daughter Ravel was like one years old, you know. We lived with my parents for like six months till we find a, a house, the right house. 
And it, yeah, I just kind of started, you know, where I could trying to form a band. I'd had it in several incarnations. Some people worked well for it and others didn't. And then we got something that seemed to kind of work and um, we got that to a very high level, um, you know, to the point where like Rick Beato found us on MySpace, you know, and he was like a EMI producer and seemed to have all these connections and wanted to record us, you know. And uh, so we ended up going there and making this full record that um, only got released like a year last year when he did that video by me. <laughs> so um, you made the whole record, but it it was it, it was never released. Yeah, the band the band broke up after that, and you know it's like after not that it wasn't particularly acrimonious or anything. It was just. It just leaves a bad taste in your mouth, you know, when you work hard for something for so long and and then you're gonna associate the art some you know with those that you know memory or something. And whenever I the band quit, you know, when I started doing my own solo stuff, I guess there was also more of just like this was more of me artistically, I think. I'd kind of developed a style, which is me and the guitar that seemed to be more um you, you know like I, there wasn't the 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 i can when i hear the band stuff i can hear all the influences if you know what i mean yeah and well so, when you and i talked about this this idea of not chasing fame you know not, not you you started just doing what you were doing you're making your music and and maybe in some ways you forgot about all that, but Rick Beato didn't fit, forget about it. Yeah, I was just making my music, just like you know Van Gogh going out and doing his paintings. I mean, <laughs> it was one. It's one of those things where you have to come to terms with, like, you know, it's just you do things because you have to, you right. know, and you have your own kind of drive. So, so your measurement of success isn't the way the world is it's more like if i get us if i get a tune or or i do this amazing arrangement of a chopin piece that comes to me it's almost like this kind of stamp of approval from that world where art comes from you know that more real world and it's like a receipt that you're on the right path so I've always just been kind of chasing the, the, the best song that I can write or the best poem uh, or, you know, just the right piece that seems to have this emotional purchase to it, that, um, whether or not, because you can't control really success. And I'm not, usually real artists are not the best networkers or hustlers. Okay because it's kind of, it's grotesque to your muse, you know, kind of self-promotion. Um, that's something you have to learn to do anyway on some level, but it's um, it's difficult, you know, because it's, because it's kind of egregious to your spirit and it's the opposite of the nature of art, um, which carries with it the knowledge that something's being given to you and you didn't make it really that, right, to get. that you were just in the same room when it happened. 
So, yeah, I mean, and then, yeah, Rick, I mean, he's always kind of jumped in occasionally to, to help, even after the band. And, and he had his own things he was dealing with, you know, with the kind of collapse of the music industry. He wasn't getting these big budget EMI producing contracts and stuff. And so after the band broke up, he he was like, what are you doing, Alan? You know, send me stuff that you're, you know, and so I sent him these songs I'd been working on. And he was like blown away by this. Yes, the Raven stuff, the kind of our original sound, you know, and and he was like, "Oh, this is awesome! We have to do a record, you know." And so he produced that first Yes, the Raven album, and, and he was actually going to start a music or like a record label just for me and this other guy, like a kind of a more a boutique label, I guess, you know. And then there's some kind of things happened that weren't you know predicted and it wasn't possible. But then recently, and whenever his YouTube channel started to get really big, I think I think he maybe had like sixty thousand subscribers, which doesn't seem like much compared to the three and a half million subscribers he has now. Subscribers to, uh, yeah. to his YouTube channel, yeah, YouTube channel. So That's at, a at huge. one point, yeah, he had about sixty thousand at one point, and and he and he was calling me up and he's like hey alan you know this uh, youtube thing's really going you know and he was asking me if i could use one of my songs he could use to do a video about but he just started doing all this teaching on youtube and you see he's a very knowledgeable jazz expert and etc um so he uh at a certain point you know he would call he would he would kind of call me and be like you need to do your youtube thing seriously you know because it helps to have expertise you know and uh and then a certain we would just talk about things you know yeah i would talk to him about he'd interviewed like sting and really famous musicians and stuff which was kind of crazy and i would visit him sometimes and it got to a certain point where he got annoyed by like a TikTok phenomenon. There was some kid who got like 9 billion followers or some plays because it was just some thing is pretending his mom was making up beats, something really shallow and stupid. And it, and it annoyed him to the point where he's like, Oh, I'm going to make a video about you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he was all excited about the box thing I was doing, but he was even more excited about my songwriting, you know, so he was just trying to figure out the story of how to do it. And uh, we chatted about it. And we, um, so we kind of just talked back and forth. And he was like, I'm doing it tomorrow. You know, I'm doing, you know, and I hadn't done the, Chac I hadn't finished the Chacon video yet. And I was like, wait until I do the Chacon. And he's like, no, I got to do it tomorrow. And so, you know, he just spent a whole day getting that video ready. And he's really good at that, you know. The, yeah, he's really he's a very he's an amazing uh, communicator. You know, he can just riff on things, and they're much more clear than most people would do after ten years of both Toastmaster. About you had five hundred thousand views. Yeah, yeah, it got up to be about half a million, and then it was like, <laughs> and it, you know, he just kind of what he did for me, which was amazing. He he was able to bring together the, the desperate things that I do, you know, and bring it into kind of make sense. Cause initially I was kind of a bit squeamish, even about putting videos of my classical playing 
on my YouTube channel because it was all about my songs and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then those mixing those two worlds was a little weird for me. It still is a little strange. But he was able to bring the whole story of how we met, my songs, point people to my Spotify account. And so my Spotify went from like hardly any listeners to like 15,000 people following me on both Alan Mearns and Yes, The Raven. So it was just crazy, you know. And, you know, my YouTube subscribers went from like 2,000 to like 23,000 just from his uh, little spiel, you know. And and he and he's such a knowledgeable musician too. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like Stanley's really knowledgeable about pop music and classical music. Rick's very similar. He's a highly trained classical and jazz uh, musician, but he also, he understands what's good about any kind of music, whether it's a good pop song or rap thing. So he's not snobbish and, and he, uh, so he understands the intricacies of what made the Bach stuff good and different and kind of revolutionary. And so then there's even like these really famous classical guitarists that were piping in about the Bach, you know, like Sergio Assad or, or these other, these kind of heroes of mine growing up, these kind of guitar gods. So, um, yeah, it was a very strange phenomenon, you know, just one day where you're, there's kind of an agoraphobia about it too, just being so exposed right, one right. day to all these people being interested in you. It was overwhelming. I just spent like a week responding to YouTube comments. <laughs> you know? So I'm still kind of, yeah. So, you know, then I'm just in the next phase of just trying to create more art, you know, mm-hmm. so, and, and doing the next thing, which I have in my system, you know. Well, you and I have talked about the fact that uh, you, I think you have a good understanding of the blessings that are in your life. Like, for instance, your family, which you you mentioned. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So you yeah. so you know about the realization of what what is really to be important, um, and. And as you have said, you know, you don't seek out fame. You don't, you're, you, that's not your end game. No, no. It's just like, yeah, in my, I know in my heart that on some level, um, even if, you know, if the music industry hadn't kind of hadn't collapsed and we got this big record deal with the band and we went out touring 200 shows a year, I don't know what that would have done to my life. In retrospect, I can't imagine it would have been very good. Right. It might have been good in the world's eyes. But, you know, even in my kind of uh, the, the humiliation of my own kind of failure and, and growth of my inner life, being able to raise both my kids and homeschooling them for several years, um, entering into poetry very seriously. I mean, none of these things would have happened um without that kind of quote unquote failure, so to speak, you know. And so yeah, I mean I always think of when I think of my wife, my kids and my parents and you know that in a sense I've already won the lottery, you know. And a lot of the reasons why people seek out success, you know, it probably are for some deep rooted uh you know biological you know, drives and and wanting to find the right person or to climb the ladder of, you know, 
success or something. So, you know, in a strange way, when you've got like the, the true riches um, and you can recognize that you're already richer. My dad has always said, you know, your wealth is in your friends, you know, and, and so, you know, that's really been the case. And, you know, when I think about it too, you can always think philosophically, um, like one of uh, my favorite films is the Lars von Trier film, Melancholia, which is a, you know, it's not a, a happy-go-lucky movie or anything, but it's about this kind of planet that's coming towards the earth, you know, and, uh, the, and how certain people react to it. Um, these two sisters, one of them just kind of completely collapses under the weight of this impending oblivion. And the other sister, who's kind of a bipolar, uh, kind of the problem child, she, she actually has this inner strength to deal with it and comfort the child and play a pretend game and all while this planet is coming to clash with the earth. Mm. But, but I find when I watch that movie, you know, I find it like a strange relief because it, it, it put things in a very radical sense in perspective. You know, we're all living out our lives and th there is an end coming for all of us. There is that same, that might as well be a planet coming. Right. That's what our, every one of our inevitable deaths is, you know, and and so the idea of like just scratching and clawing for look at me, look at me, and trying to get some kind of you know, and and then missing your actual life, <laughs> you know, and missing the true riches of of love and um, being some something genuinely to someone, you know, you could miss in that desperation. And then you end up creating a shell of yourself too anyway when you live that kind of life, which is so prevalent on social media. We all know that fakeness and uh, this kind of thing that isn't real anyway. And then say you were to get profoundly well-known and famous. Well, that, that thing that is famous probably really isn't you. Right. <laughs> you know, it's kind of the Borges and I predicament you know Borges writes that poem about Borges and me <laughs> it was this guy called Borges that has all these things happening while me on the other hand I go out and get the mail and you know make toast in the morning and so there's a strange kind of like philosophical darkness to that reaching for you know that Promethean fire of fame and so I'd rather genuinely be something to somebody than to be and then have this version of myself kind of, <laughs> you know what I mean? This is a, this is a deep discussion about reality and fantasy and how those things get blended. Yeah, it's especially today, you know, where things obviously, obviously get out of hand with that, you know, and uh, so, yeah, you know, and, and obviously we all want to have um we all want to have, you know, feedback on the, the work that we do. You know, anyone that does serious work, especially like in the arts, you do you do do it for others in pleasure and or consolation. Um, beauty itself is an outgoing thing. In in the nature of it, it's 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 tied in with truth and love, and it's and we. All arts are communicative, you know, and people who say they aren't, maybe aren't, I don't know, 
maybe barking up the wrong tree. So you, you do want the the right kind of validation, I guess, which is feels good. Yeah. You know, the people who know what they're doing respect you and what you're doing. But but in a sense, I've always had, um, you know, I have mentors like Stanley or like my poet uh, mentor, Adrian Rice, who it's like, if you do something that means something to them or Rick Beato, it really doesn't matter what other people think, you know, because you respect their opinion so much that um, if it's good enough for them, it's good and the chips can fall where they, you know, where they may, you know, and I always, I kind of made up an aphorism that might be true. Not sure if it's true, but I always say like quality takes care of itself, you know, and if you do good work, it's rare that it's going to not get some kind of eventual kind of validation, so to speak. But a lot of my heroes like Bach didn't, you know, have any real validation in his lifetime next to what he was worth, you know, or Van Gogh or people like this. So as an artist, the real contract is in your inner life with, you know, your muse or God or whatever you want to picture that. And you just do the work that you've been given to do whether or not it gets celebrated or not, you know, you just know that you're doing the right thing and uh, you're trying to respond to that ephemeral voice that what beauty is, what um, truth is, you know, so well, you just kind of live in that world. You, you, one of the things we, we always like to ask of our guest, uh, Alan is, uh, and we appreciate all the time you've given us today is that, um, what kind of advice do you have for students? And especially how do you, I mean, you have followed your muse and I'm wondering how do you, you when you're, you're probably teaching kids young that were like you, how do you get them to follow that like you have followed? Well, you have to, um, I, I try and teach people that, and no matter what realm you're in, whether you're a writer or a musician or a painter or a, an entrepreneur, I'd say the most important factor of all is creativity and being um, developing your imagination, you know. So that's what sets people apart, you know, say even in the guitar world or, you know, it's not good enough to just be highly competent because there's thousands of highly competent people, you have to have the develop the capacity for original thought mm. and for inspired ideas, ideas that aren't just um, functional or utilitarian. And that requires time. It requires um, kind of a stability, requires good sleep, maybe some caffeine, you know, <laughs> But um, developing that sense, and, and that's what is central to me, whether I'm writing songs or poetry or trying to get an inspired fingering for this Bach piece that, to where it's easy to play on sounds amazing. It's the same like light bulb thing. So whatever thing you're into, you know, you got to cultivate the ability for deep thought 
I would say no matter what you're in, you should be um, part of your time where you read, read things that aren't in your own sphere. So I'm very interested in, you know, science and comedians and, you know, anything that's creative or to do with looking for reality. Um, and so you have to cultivate your inner life. Mm. So whenever you have depth like that, when you have depth to draw from and you, you develop the scaffolding in your own imagination, that's why, you know, when you're a kid, you're like, why am I doing this algebra? Why am I doing this? Well, you're, you're developing mental scaffolding and reasoning capacity. And so you have to develop these things in order for the creative act when it comes that there's something for it to grip hold of, you know. And so that's what I would suggest is cultivating that, cultivate your um, problem-solving skills with games even. I mean, I know, you know, I started playing Scrabble just to have something to do with my dad when he's in Ireland. But I got really like like addicted to it. I got really good at it. But but I could swear that it actually broke open something in my uh, cognitive system in yeah. terms of finding answers from uh, nowhere. Um, so so deliberately doing that and and just staying motivated and hopeful about what you do. Um, you know, so even when I'm practicing the guitar, for instance, I, I've watched like all these videos about like Kobe Bryant talking about his work ethic and doing all the detailed things you have to do. And so it's important to um, stay focused and encouraged and know what you want to do. And don't let I was watching this video earlier today, actually, of uh, J.K. Rowling, you know, when she had just finished the first, the second Harry Potter book, you know, and she was just talking about being like, you know, a single mom and, you know, and knowing that she had to get this book finished before she started teaching because she knew that she wouldn't have time. But she knew she needed time to do this thing right, you know. And so that's another kind of thing that seems a bit counterintuitive is that sometimes to do the thing that you need to do very well, you have to almost put up with whatever you have to put up with to do the thing right. You know, if you have to stay on your parents' couch, you know what I mean, and live on ramen noodles, you know what I mean, like Cormac McCarthy before he became like this, you know, well-known novelist, you know, he just lived in a trailer and lived off peanut butter sandwiches. You know what I mean? If you really want to do what you do, you have to actually go all the way with it because that's when you'll create something that's as special. And it may be difficult. You may have to have sacrifices, but it's much. It's worth it to do. Or like Charles Bukowski, you know, living on one payday chocolate bar a day because <laughs> he knew he had to write. That was the most important thing. So if you have a thing that's in you and, and you have your own turbine, you have to trust that, even though it might seem counterintuitive and in the in the short term it may not be the most lucrative thing financially or whatever, but you have to do it all the way. And that can be difficult, you know, especially if you have, like I had a young family, but thankfully I had this very supportive wife who knew I had genuine talent, you know, and and she supports me through thick and thin, you know. So that's the only advice really I can oh, that's that, true. you know. 
That's terrific. And, and, and even though you won't do this self-promotion, I'm going to promote for you. Please check out your Alan's work. You can go to Alan Mearns. It's M-E-A-R-N, even though we say. Yeah, Mearns. Mearns never learns. Mearns never learns. And so go to uh, check out his website and see why Rick Beato said, um, as he called you, an unknown musical genius and i'm I, i'm going to say that for you because I, I i we are so proud of you and uh glad that you um came into our existence here at austin p we're, we're thankful well, for that. i'm very very grateful for austin p helping me go to graduate school and for stanley it's helping him um be who he is and for jeff wood too who's an amazing person when i was there taking composition lessons really um added to my world you know well it's it's been great talking with you alan all right buzz and thanks to all our viewers and listeners out there for checking out the podcast we hope that you will continue to watch as we profile some of the outstanding alumni we have here in the college of arts and letters at austin p state university so until next time stay safe take care and god bless 